Hi, everybody, and uh, thanks again, hopefully, for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, uh, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, and along with our chief strategist, Shelley Cohan, who, by the way, is also a consultant at large and a professor at FIT. Uh, we welcome you to our conversation on the topic of a uh, little exaggeration here, but I think it's true. He who owns the inventory owns all of the liability. Oh, wait just a minute. <laughs> In the last century, retail wholesale model, retailers owned the inventory, right? Calling it an asset. But you ask any brand or vendor who sold their stuff to the retailer, if the retailer owned all of the liability, and you would be laughed at for being naive. It's a joke and has been for at least half a century. What's that word? Chargebacks, blah, blah, blah. Backing up all of the markdowns, all of this, and it just got worse and worse. Retailers beating wholesalers to death. Sorry, retailers. <laughs> Among all of those brands and vendors, if you brought the conversation down to its no-brainer level, they would say, hey, of course, essentially we are subsidizing their bottom line. Another way to look at it is that there is too much retail money tied up in inventory, an asset that sits primarily dormant until it's sold. And it doesn't get better with age like wine. <laughs> and furthermore, the wholesale retail model encourages the pushing of more and more excess into an already overstored and overstuffed marketplace. On the one hand, the wholesalers want to sell more to the retailer. And on the other hand, why shouldn't the retailer take in more goods knowing they're going to be bailed out at the end of the year by chargebacks to the wholesalers? Not a pretty picture. So, I know, Shelly, you spent a lot of time in the retail world. Give us some of your perspectives on, on this whole thing. Well, Robin, let me start by saying many retailers who relied too heavily on this traditional wholesale to retail model were really burnt last March when the pandemic hit. It was a wake up call for sure. It's the amount of inventory investment that specifically general merchandise retailers, discount stores, department stores fall in that category have to make. It's tremendous. And the reason it's so heavy is the they have to meet the demand of having breadth and depth of product assortments. So if you look at the current assets, if you're looking at, you know, the balance sheet, the current assets of inventory runs, you know, between 60 and 80 percent. Considering all this cash that's tied up in inventory, department stores have also been much slower of at turning that inventory. So department store inventory turn is 2.9, whereas discount stores run 7.6 and, you know, Walmart is close to eight. So department stores who are heavily reliant on women's apparel and accessories, which typically runs anywhere between 45 to 60% of total revenue, depending on the specific retailer, they have one of the slowest turns on inventory. Even if you compare their format to specialty store, which is close to an inventory turn of five, and of course the crown jewel, 
which is fast fashion, and their inventory turn is over 12. So fast fashion companies run a vertical supply chain, and the speed to market is six weeks compared to six or nine months in the wholesale retail model. So the whole point from a financial perspective is these larger retail department stores, you know, if they can reduce the inventory holding and move it off its books while keeping similar product assortment available to shoppers, they can generate more profits on less assets. So in other words, the return on assets becomes much higher. And this is from a financial perspective, not even taking into account what you said, Robin, about this browbeating relationship driven by strong merchant communities. Those days are gone. The future of these larger format stores, both discount and department stores, is to re-energize the business model that they've been operating in for decades. Yep, yep. But, but you know what, Shelley, the word uh, re-energizing suggests, I think, just energizing what they have been doing. Um, and I think it's got to be breaking the old model and creating a new one right. rather than just re-energizing. Re Cur currently, it's been given a moniker, you know, by experts and pundits. They say it's, it's kind of in the industry oxygen, so to speak, and it's being called strategic partnerships. But once again, a flippant kind of off-the-cuff phrase that really, in my mind, lacks the transformative power of what the future is really going to look like. But yeah, it, it's a generic big umbrella, uh, you know, concept that can contain a myriad of different partnerships. But uh, try to think of it like this. You know, in the beginning, the retail wholesale model was a partnership that worked, okay? The retailer knew more about what their community of consumers wanted or desired. They knew more than the brands and vendors did. Retailers were truly curators and very good at that. After all, they were a part of the community and brands relied on them to know what to buy, how to present their brands, how to build traffic in the store. So the retailers really control the whole enchilada, if you want to call it that, including the inventory. And it worked, okay? Yep. Today, and probably beginning in the 90s and first part of the century, most major brands now know more about their, not only their loyal customers, but prospective consumers than the retailers do thanks to research and now more than ever with uh, artificial intelligence and data analytics. And this knowledge also informs product creation, marketing strategy, and most importantly, distribution, where, when, and how often. And the only thing missing for the major brands in the old retail wholesale model was their loss of inventory control and ownership of it. On the retailer's side, their nameplate brands, Nordstrom, Bloomings, Bloomings, Saks, Neiman's, Macy's, Target, Kohl's, and all the others have built their brands with varying degrees of success. So now they should understand that strategically, they should own and control what their brands do best, no longer curating and controlling and owning inventory 
but owning the four walls within which they can create compelling experiences that will focus more on building traffic. And a big part of creating an exciting place under the brand Kohl's, Target, Nordstrom, and others is to act as a realtor. In our book, we called it an enclosed mini mall and invite the brands that are compatible and synergistic with their nameplate brand. However, and as I said, all of this is just the beginning. They invite those brands uh, to lease space in their four walls, set up shop, including staff, own the inventory and its flow, and likely participate in some way in the retail brands marketing and uh, experience building. In this new model, both the retail brand and the product brands control and do what they do best and build the synergy that ultimately, obviously, raises the level of consumer traffic and experience. And Shelley, pa pause here. I, I really need to clarify for our audience and for myself once again that I am not talking about the old concession model, okay? It's been around for a long time, big in the EU, Japan, Asia, because I'm told by others way smarter than I, concessions only work in a few large flagship stores like Selfridges, for example, my poster child for this model who only had one major store in, in London. I'm told the model is too complex to operate across a fleet of hundreds of stores. Many in markets where the better brands would not want to lease space, estimating that they couldn't do enough business to justify the lease. So I'm talking about a totally different model here. You know, I just mentioned it. They need active realtors as a mini mall. And this model is one that has the retailer in any sized market leasing space at the going real estate rates in those markets. I probably told, I will probably be told I'm out of my mind, but Shelly, help me out here with the other parts of this, knowing that you had a lot of experience during your career <clears throat> with the complexities of these arrangements. Throw, you know, throw some of them out so we might find some of the holes in this logic. Well, Robin, you know, concessions or what we used to call lease agreements of the past were these long drawn out agreements that were very complex and highly beneficial more towards the retailers. And what's interesting is that lease agreements or leased operations was typically run by the operations team. So it was more about executing policy procedure and uh, versus brand building and business collaboration. So typically these agreements were based on square footage in the store, location of the floor space. Um, they were built with various levels of, you know, payouts um, and sales level achievements. And the more the vendor made in revenue, the more it paid the retailer. So, and included in these agreements were, you know, marketing terms, pricing terms, policies. So these types of agreements were not sustainable across all markets in all store locations. 
The business was run based on a set of rules and policies and really lacked a collaborative effort to drive a strategic partnership. You know, the concession model, which has worked well in Europe and Asia, has taken a while to really build here in the U.S. market. But I think these new collaborative revenue models are different than that of the concession model and are based on the idea of revenue share. So the brands control the inventory, the pricing, the staff or staff training, and even for e-concessions, the brand helps with website design and take on some of those operating costs of the business. So the partnership becomes this collaborative effort and less of a dictatorship based on part of the retailer. In both models, you know, the concessions of the past and this new revenue share of the future, the key advantage is this lack of inventory investment on part of the retailer. So the newer model is more advantageous as some operating expenses also shift to the vendors, making the agreements more beneficial to the retailer. But also in the collaborative revenue share, there's a huge opportunity in this direct to consumer model, which further reduces risk on part of the retailer and vendor as items being purchased can be drop shipped and be based on consumer demand. So this reduces supply chain costs and the inventory holding for both the retailers and the vendors. For general merchandise stores, you know, this collaborative partnership makes sense and it allows these large format stores to grow and continue to provide relevant experience and product to the target market. But they have to pick the right collaborators and the right partners. And they also, um, the department stores, they can't give up and the discount stores, the general merchandise stores, they can't give up on this idea of private label. The private label brands that resonate with the core target market Target and Nordstrom's have done a great job of this in the fashion apparel categories. Uh, yeah, very good point. You know, they can't give up the private uh, brand, you know, efforts and strategies. They, they really do work. And I, I, you know, misstating that, but that's a very good point. And also, you did a, a great dive into the weeds here, Shelley, and a lot of issues around why the concession model needs to take on a different process. Uh, currently called strategic partnerships and your idea of a different revenue sharing um, and any smart CEO today, brand or retailer realizes that, you know, the traditional wholesale real retail model is a conflictive non-relationship. The, the, the retail wholesale concept, in my opinion, is a dead man walking and it's soon to be dumped into the trash bin of history. <laughs> Hate to say it, but it's my opinion. Uh, technology and consumers are informing us that there is a totally new future of how product and retail brands will interact, how they will partner in ways that will create synergies for both, and ultimately a more personalized and compelling experience for the consumer. And by the way, you've heard and seen it happening the recent moves by Ulta and Target, Sephora and Kohl's, Amazon and others, Tonal now at, at Nordstrom, and many others across the board. As I have said, those brands, by the way, overnight get hundreds of new distribution locations 
for very low time and capital investments. You know, Robin, I think you wrote many years ago about the long tail theory, these small niche kind of businesses being more impactful in the retail landscape. Yeah. So if you're, if you're saying that these small niche nimble businesses keep growing and delivering relevant product to the marketplace and the traditional supply chain, this wholesale, wholesale to retail model is dead. Does that mean department stores are doomed? Uh, well, <laughs> I, don't, go ahead. I don't think they're dead or doomed for sure. But I think the future of the larger format stores, both discount and department store, really have to re-energize the business model that they've been operating for decades. I know you don't like that word, re-energize, but they have to kind of really take a good look at how that model is going to work going forward. That strategic model uh, really makes sense to let expert brands run themselves with autonomy and control. I right. mean, if you take Target, for example, and you look at their beauty business, you know, many years ago, Target ran a traditional discount beauty business in a discount store environment. And so that model then evolved to trying to go out and get some of these cool niche brands like Sonia Kashuk comes to mind, um, which has done really well there. The problem is that, you know, even with these new artists or new brands coming in, the experience at Target, to be honest, fell a little short at that time. There were lots of out of stocks, the, the staff wasn't trained. So in this next iteration, Target has made one of the best decisions, and that is to recognize it's not a beauty expert. And it's now going to allow Ulta Beauty to come in and help develop a proper beauty experience for shoppers. So other advantages are creating great collaborations with brands that really drive home relevant messaging and products to the target market. So Robin, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, this shift of vendors who know who used to know nothing about the consumer, now being so close to the consumer, they probably know more than retailers. And I think this is true. Brands have been listening and using data analytics to better understand their customers and the ultimate consumer. A great example is the iconic brand, Eileen Fisher at Nordstrom's. Eileen Fisher is very aware of its customer base. And Eileen Fisher teamed up with Nordstrom's on a gender-neutral, gender sustainable collection, which you know really shares the values of both these massive brands. Um, and that capsule was delivered when they launched their New York City women's store um, on 57th Street. That's a great example, Shelley, and we're gonna see more and more of that. So, you know, I kind of like, like to sum it up a little bit with, with this. That the big legacy retailers built their brands on the promise to a select consumer segment that if they came to Nordstrom or Macy's or Saks or Neiman's, for example, that they would find almost everything they would expect from what that brand stood for, okay? Which the brand curated and purchased from hundreds of product brands because they knew their customers better than the brand's that they bought from, okay. And that promise and delivery of the consumer's product and brand preference was enough to build traffic into their stores, okay? Now, the product brands, as we just mentioned, know more about their consumers than the retail brand does, and they can and are now going directly to their consumers, both online and building out their own branded stores. So at the end of the day, 
they will only seek out those legacy retail brands that are in consumer markets they want to be in, knowing their consumers are there, and they will negotiate with, with that retailer for the space they want in the store, and they will negotiate an arrangement for setting up their branded shop and running it as their own, including staffing and ownership of the inventory. And they will negotiate a lease based on the real estate going rates in each of those markets. Call me crazy, but I think that will work. This frees up capital that the retailer can invest in building traffic by promising a great four walls experience, which is what they should be doing. If they can't do it and don't do it, they're going to be gone. So bye-bye the wholesale to retail antique. Hello, 21st century revenue shared branded distribution platforms. Amen How about that? that. <laughs> Amen to that, Robin. Okay. For our listeners, you can find more of our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and the RobinReport.com. And please follow us on social media, LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter for latest thoughts about the industry. Thanks so much for being here today. And of course, you'll find more of a provocative insights on the RobinReport.com. And as I say every week, any of you out there listening, if you've got a hot topic in mind that you would love us to cover, please send me an email, robin at therobinreport.com. And thank you so very much for joining us today.